So anyway, today, as you all know, is Father's Day, right? <clears throat> today, happy Father's Day to all of you. So I just thought it would be wise of me to take a, a, a few minutes and say a word of thanks uh, and offer up some praises of thanksgiving to God, our Father, for all of the dads out there. Amen. If you look at statistics, I'm a numbers guy, I like data, I like to make decisions based on on two things, based on the scriptures and based on data. Uh, if I can get those to line up, man, we're in, we're in good shape. Um, but uh, sometimes the scriptures and the data don't coincide, and the scripture always takes precedence. But I'm a data guy, and the, the data shows that a child who is raised in a fatherless home is twice as likely to wind up in prison as a child who is raised in a home with, with both parents. Now, that is a a huge blessing, I would say. That does not even address the question of whether or not the father that is in the home is actually a good dad or a bad one. How many of you knows there are, there are some bad dads out there? There are bad moms out there. Unfortunately, that's the way. There are bad apples in every bunch, it seems. Um, so it doesn't even address that question. Just by the fact that being there, there's a blessing on the house. It shows there's a structural blessing when we align ourselves, the more closely we align ourselves to the, the word and the will and the design of God. It's a structural blessing in the homes when a dad is just there. He doesn't even have to be a particularly good dad. He just has to show up. And just by showing up, there's a blessing on the home. That's because when God says this way is blessed and this way leads to destruction, that's just the way it is. God doesn't have to do anything about it. He's already decreed it. He has declared it. And now it just has to play out. If you walk in this way, you walk in blessings. If you walk in this way, you walk in the path of destruction. That's why we can see people who are not Christians, but who we, it looks like their lives are being blessed because whether they know it or not, they are walking in the wisdom of God. When you walk in the wisdom of God, the way is blessed. Amen. It's blessed. And so we see that in homes that have dads, the way is, is blessed. Remember when the, the Lord said, behold, I set before you blessings and cursings and life and death. Therefore, make a choice. Amen. Choose life. <laughs> what, what kind of choice is it? Choose life, dummy. Therefore, choose life. This way is blessed. That way is cursed. And God doesn't have to be actively involved in cursing anyone. We make those choices by not walking in, in His way. He's already laid out the framework. So if you just follow the framework, you'll be blessed. If, so if just showing up, dads, if just showing up, just getting the structure right brings such a blessing, imagine a dad who is both present and lovingly engaged. I, I mean, you will almost, I'm going to say almost because there are exceptions to every rule, but you will almost guarantee that your children will grow up to be contributors in society and not takers. Dads who are both present and loving, who are engaged, they're so very important in the lives of their children in the lives of their homes, in their communities, in society in general. So I just want to take a few minutes and say thank you to all of you dads out there who are both present and by your virtue of you even being here, you're engaged. Sadly, that is becoming more and more of a rare commodity these days. 
I think in time in our society where we have seen consistent and concentrated attack on masculinity and dads have been relegated to the sidelines and way too many of those dads are happy with that arrangement, you all stand as beacons of hope in a dark and dying world. So our thanks to you all, my thanks to you all for raising your children and being present in your homes and being good husbands and good fathers. It is appropriate also that I take just a minute because I have the pulpit. It is appropriate that I honor my own dad. After all, and I do it in front of you all because he is both my dad and he is our senior pastor. For nearly three decades, he's shepherded us. He's led us in the ways of love and in the instruction of God's word. Dad, you've been an example to very many people on what it means to be a humble servant. You've selflessly given of your time and your talent and your treasure in the righteous hope that others might come to know and to serve the Lord as you do and to love him as you do. Now, that has been true of your life in the church, but it has also been true of your life at home with your family and with your friends. I'm going to, this is a little tongue-in-cheek, if you will, but he calls me at least once a day to tell me at least four or five times a day that he loves me and how proud he is of me, lest I forget it. Sometimes he tells me too many times, you're going to puff me up, Dad. (laughs) But I want to say today, Dad, that I am... I am proud of you. I want to return that compliment in the great congregation. I am proud of you. Without taking away any praise or any credit from my Father in heaven, giving all glory and all honor to him for the merciful blessings that he has given me in my life, I can say without reservation, church, to you, dad and mom, that my biggest blessing in life has been been raised by you. When you came to Paris, Dad, that was, boy, that was uh, nearly a hundred years ago, wasn't it? (laughs) Almost. When you came to Paris, you didn't have a name. Nobody knew you. Nobody even cared about that Rogers boy. You didn't share a name with your mother. You didn't even share a name with any of your brothers. You were born into poverty and into obscurity. Every card in the deck was stacked against you. But here's a truth that the gospel gives us. The Bible says that God chooses what is low and despised in this world to confound the wise. He is a defender of the fatherless and the weak And by his great mercy and by his great grace and by his providence today, that low young man has a name in this town. You have a great name in this city. Dad, there are very few places that we can go, and I know this from personal experience. We cannot even go out of state without coming into contact with people who know who you are. There are very few circles in this community, especially among those who are, who are down and outcast, where the name Terry Rogers does not mean something special. Amen. You have to look very hard and talk to a whole lot of people to find someone who would be willing to say that he is your enemy. 
And that's because when a man's ways please the Lord, even his enemies are at peace with him. For as long as I can remember, Dad, you have placed your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ. You have served his people and you have fed his sheep. God has given you a heritage for your faithfulness. And you have given me a legacy. Some giant shoes to fill. And I will spend the rest of my days trying to do just that. I love you, Dad, and I'm proud of you. Thank you for your upbringing. And thank you from all of us at Family Worship Center for your service to God's kingdom. Happy Father's Day to you and happy Father's Day to you all. Now that I've gotten past that without actually shedding a tear, let's go into the Word of God, all right? Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Titus. While you're turning, I'm going to say a quick prayer. Father God, we love you and we thank you for, for being a good, good father. We thank you for the dads that you have given us who are loving and engaged and present. Father, we turn now to your word and we ask you, Lord, to open our hearts and minds to receive what you would say to us today. Humble ourselves under the strength, under the mighty strength of your holy scripture. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn or you can turn them on <laughs> and go to the book of Titus. It's toward the back of your book, um, tiny little book. It's a letter that is written by Paul to encourage uh, Pastor Titus as he was pastoring in, in, on the island of Crete. We're going to look at chapter 3. This is going to be our anchor text, but we will, uh, we'll talk about some other passages in it. Uh, but this is, this is our anchor. So let's begin reading in verse 1. Paul says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, <clears throat> to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Christ, Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So, I will tell you at the front that the Apostle Paul has created some tension here when he instructs Timothy to remind everyone to be kind. He's created some tension when he says, don't speak evil of others. When he says, don't pursue malice. When he says a number of things in that first sentence, that first verse, 
You'll see that tension if you read the whole letter, which you should. It'd probably take you 10 minutes, if that. Look at verse 1 again. This is the instruction for the believer, for the Christian. Paul says, remind them, which tells me this is something that they should already know. But they must be reminded. They must be, uh, it must be brought back to their attention because clearly many of them have strayed away from this path. Remind them to be submissive to rulers. Do you think they were breaking laws? Remind them to be obedient. Remind them to, uh, to uh, be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. To avoid arguments. To be gentle. To show, look at this word, to show, is that not crazy? Perfect courtesy toward all people. Boy, that's a list, isn't it? So Paul creates some tension because he gives some instructions that seem contradictory at first glance when you read in the previous passage. You see, there was some, some really big oppositions going on in the church in Crete. You know, Paul, he didn't just write for nothing. I mean, he would rather go and visit and talk. But when a, an issue had to be addressed, Paul's going to put pen to paper. And that was difficult for him because all the evidence seems to indicate that Paul had a vision problem. He had to have someone actually write his letters for him. So this wasn't just something he just said, oh, I'm just going to type on my... I mean, this was a labor. And Paul had to correct some issues. And there were some issues in the church at Crete. False teachings and political differences. Everything from the old ways and the old superstitions, pagans things creeping in all the way over to legalism and, and ritualism. And the opposition came in many forms. Opposition to the truth. Opposition to the church. And it ran the spectrum from one end to the other. You know, pagan superstitions and pagan ways that were creeping in, and those were obviously unchristian. And those had to be addressed, and we had to put those out. We can't have pagan rituals going on in the church. But on the other end, you had something that was a bit more, more subtle. Because it was coming in through the people who looked godly. They were telling Christians that they had, to be, uh, they had to follow Jewish ceremonies and follow Jewish rituals and Jewish circumcisions. And I know this was a political fight in the church because in chapter 1, verse 10, uh, Paul calls them the circumcision party. They were organized. They, they have an agenda. See, there was a power struggle in the church over who's going to lead, who's going to call the shots. Who's going to decide who gets in and who has to stay out? And, and this, this, this circumcision party, or Judaizers as they were called, they were not willing to share their racial heritage as the people of God. You're not really saved, and thus you cannot be in leadership if you have not been circumcised. You're not really saved if you don't follow the rituals, and so you cannot tell people what to do. You cannot interpret the scriptures rightly. They argued that if you weren't circumcised, then you couldn't be part of the family of God. Not, not really anyway. And this caused great division. And whole families and whole households were being broken up over it. The argument, this same argument, is still at work in the church today. Oh, the requirements have been shifted. The requirements are a little bit different, but the argument is the same. And listen, it comes from many different places in the church. I'm just going to point out one to you that's obvious that I have dealt with in my own life. 
There's an argument that comes from those who will tell you that the evidence for salvation and baptism in the Holy Spirit is that you must speak in unknown tongues. Some of them will go so far as to say that if you don't speak in tongues, then you aren't really saved at all because there's no evidence of your salvation. Many others will teach that there are levels. You aren't as saved as someone who does speak in tongues if you don't speak in tongues. You're, you're on a lower level. The, you know, those people who don't speak in tongues, they don't have the fullness. They're, they're missing something. They don't have the spirit. That doctrine is, I'm sorry, that, if this offends you, but that doctrine is nowhere in Scripture. Be good Bereans and go search it out and find it out for yourself if you disagree. That doctrine is nowhere in Scripture. And if you read the Apostle Paul, you will see very easily and you will conclude very easily if you read with an eye for the Scripture, not bringing your own prejudices, not bringing your own ideas to it, but letting the Scripture shape what you think about the world and about Christianity. If you will take it from the Scripture, you will see that Apostle Paul equates that very same thing to this apostasy that's going on in the church at Crete, this heresy. In chapter 1, verse 11, Paul says, they must be silenced. They are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what ought not to be taught. In verse 13, he says, rebuke them sharply. Well, thanks for that tension, Paul. How are we supposed to do that? How are we supposed to be ready for every good work? Remember verse 1 of chapter 3. Ready for every good work. Speak no, no evil of anybody. Avoid arguments. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy to all people. And at the same time, silence the lies and call out the error. How do we do that? How does that even work? I mean, clearly... We're supposed to oppose the wrong. We're supposed to call it out, right? I mean, that, that, that's, that's what he said, isn't it? They must be silenced, rebuke them sharply. I mean, look at verse 16. Paul even goes so far as to call them detestable, uh, d- disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now, how does that line up with speak evil of nobody? You see the tension that Paul has created here. What do you do when you see something that is terribly wrong? Terribly wrong, but you're reminded, don't speak evil. Don't start an argument. Don't, you have to be gentle. You have to be perfectly courteous to everybody. What do you do? Well, if you'll come back next week, I'll tell you. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'll try to explain it. There was a great evil going on in Crete. Uh, Paul said it, it must be addressed. There were people who were taking on the name of Jesus Christ. I don't know, th- this may be the, the clarion call of my entire ministry. Do not take the name of God in vain. And people think that means saying a word, but it's not. When you say you're a Christian and act like you are not, then you have taken the name of Christ in vain. Amen. And this is what was going on. There are people who are at calling themselves Christians, they're becoming members of the church, they're promoting false doctrines, they are creating confusion, causing division, causing people to stumble and fall away, while at the same time saying, I am one of His. 
This happens today, probably more today than, than in Paul's day, just because of the expanse of, of the internet and social media and how much communication that we have one with another. The widespread uh, success of cultural Christianity versus true redemption. It's culturally wise to be a Christian, or it used to be in this country uh, 50 years ago. It was culturally wise. It was uh, uh, financially beneficial for you to be a member of a church. They're more like social clubs than they were worship houses. That's, that's what we have inherited. And you see the great falling away. On some tokens, on some, in some sense, I am, I'm thankful. Because cultural Christianity, when it's not popular, that will, that will weed the, the wolves from the... That will get the wheat from the tares. So that those who remain are the ones who are who are truly committed, those who are, who are truly on fire, those who are truly redeemed. Amen. My heart breaks for those who are lost, but they were deceived in the first place. Mm-hmm. Look at verse 16 again. He says, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. This means that they say with their mouths, they they profess to be children of God, they say that they love Him with their lips, they call Him Lord, but then they deny Him by their, they deny Him by their, they deny Him by their works. How do they deny Him? In their works. The things that they do. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, He said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, so they, they call him Lord. That's a profession. That means you are in charge. Lord, I, I, I recognize you as authority. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, they profess with their mouth by saying, Lord. And then in verse 23, he says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you... What is that word? Workers... Of lawlessness. They profess to know me, Lord, Lord, but you deny me with your works. Church, over the last few weeks, we have seen great disruption and division in our nation all around the world. It's led to great amounts of violence and, and vandalism and destruction across the country. And just this weekend, we saw even that our own little town is not immune to vandalism and people who seek to destroy. I have felt very pressed to speak from the scriptures, not just in a general way, but in a very specific way, directly into the toxic atmosphere that surrounds us. Specifically, how are we as Christians supposed to behave in a climate like this? How, how, do we, how do we stand up in a climate like this? And I will promise you, the things that you're seeing on social media, is, that is directly opposite of what the Scripture tells us to do. Amen. Amen. And so, when you take part in that, you are, you are professing Him with your... But you are denying Him in your... I believe that in times like these, when there is a a crisis, it is more important than ever for Christians to be above reproach. 
If ever there was a microscope on you, it is now. If ever there was a microscope on the church, it is now. How will they respond? How do we lead in this climate? How do we bring, remember last week when we talked about we have as Christians have a responsibility to passionately pursue reconciliation. How do we pursue reconciliation in a climate that is just dripping with hatred? In this present crisis, we must draw even closer to the scriptures. We must do the righteous and ongoing, never-ending work of humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God and the holy word of God so that we may be beacons of light in a world that is floundering in darkness. A crisis does not create character. A crisis simply reveals what was already there. And oh, the things that I have seen revealed over the past few months, especially over the last three weeks. Please understand, I speak to you with all love. I'm doing, I'm doing my best to do what he said in verse 1. Amen. Things from Christian brothers and sisters. I have seen arguments that have broken out on social media between Christian brothers over political statements. Christian brothers who worked together in ministry for years only to have one of them say, that's it, I can no longer work with you, I'm done. All over a political disagreement. So where's the power of Christ there? Where's the unity in Christ? Where is the brotherhood in that? Your political statement, your political argument, your political agenda is more important than your unity in Christ? Than your inheritance in the gospel? Are you kidding me? Profess him with your mouth, but deny him with your work. I've seen hateful and insensitive things being posted and shared by Christian brothers and sisters on both sides of the prevailing arguments. I'm not calling any one side out. This is coming from all over the spectrum. People who claim to be Christians and they're putting out hate and malice. They look more like what Paul describes in verse 3 of our text in chapter 3. Foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions. Let me, let me pause right here just for a minute. And talk about that, slaves to various passions. I'm not saying this again to be incendiary. I'm trying to be provocative. I want you to think. Mm -hmm. Paul wants a thinking church. I want a thinking church. If you are more outraged by a group of lost people who are vandalizing and pulling down Confederate statues... Now, I know that they're lost. I can say this because Christians don't act that way. That is not Christ-like fruit. And we know them by their fruit. So I know that they're lost. But if you are more outraged over that statue, and if your outrage is bigger over that statue, your hatred and your anger is bigger over that statue, than your compassion in your heart for their eternal soul, then you are enslaved to various passions. These people are, they're lost. They're lost. They're unregenerate. 
Paul would say they are dead in their trespasses. Dead. They're lost people. They don't know Christ. They very clearly are not born again. And this much is evident by how they are behaving. We know them by their fruit. So what church do we expect? This is what the world offers. It's chaos. It's hatred. It's lawlessness. What did Jesus say? Depart from me, you worker of a lawlessness. That's how King James iniquity, better translated for a modern tongue, lawlessness. That's what the iniquity, one who doesn't regard the law. Amen. What do we expect? I am angry about the vandalism and the violence also. I want it to stop. I roundly condemn it. But I cannot be so hardened over it that I'm not moved with compassion for these people. Do you know what kind of anger and hatred has to be seated and rooted in a person to do these kinds of things? They're lost. I have seen, I've well, I got to stay off social media. I have seen, I do, man, it just, it's, a, it's a cesspool. But um, just awful, awful people just acting out in just pure hatred on both sides. On both sides. There is not one person innocent in all of this. There's not one group innocent. Both sides. There's enough blame to go around. They're lost. And without Christ, they will perish. Without someone to show them who Christ is, how will they ever see Him? How will they ever know? Paul said, how will they, they believe if they have not heard? How will they hear if no one preaches the word I've seen people spending their days in malice and envy hating others so much hatred being thrown around people looking for ways to get at each other see people post and share and say foolish and hateful and malicious things and then they dare to turn around 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 and quote scripture and say well glory to God You cannot draw bitter water and sweet water from the same fountain. Amen. Amen. There are people who say that they are heirs with Christ. They profess Him with their mouths, but they deny Him with their works. And Paul calls them unfit for anything good. Verse 3 describes our fallen state, church. That's our state before Christ. That should not characterize us once we have come to know Christ is Lord and have been regenerated, made new. Old things passed away. All things become new, a new creation by the Holy Spirit. How dare we claim to be regenerated and renewed but still act with all foolishness and malice and envy and hatred. This is why Paul says to Titus, you must insist on these things. We, we, we must be ready as Christians who carry his name, we must be ready for every good work. Amen. I could spend all day on that right there. You know, Paul said, think on these things in Philippians. Whatsoever things are good and holy and righteous and of a good report, whatsoever things build up. Here he says, insist on these things. That's an internal thing, whatever we think about. This is an external thing, how we treat others. Insist on that. You do, we will not count you among us if you, if you go against this. Amen. That's what Paul is saying. Amen. Come on, you, can't, you, you are bringing a bad name to the whole body. 
and to the Lord Himself. Ready for every good work. Let me, let me address that really quick. Some of us are, we're ready for good works just as long as they don't inconvenience us. Or they don't cost us too much. Boy, it's, it's hard in church this morning, isn't it? <laughs> Speak no evil. <laughs> Speak no evil about anyone. That includes Nancy Pelosi. Avoid arguments, be gentle, show perfect courtesy to everyone, even the ones that we disagree with. There are things that we ought to know, these are things that we ought to know already, but we have to be reminded from time to time. And so I remind you today, church, no, 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 I don't remind you, I, I insist today, church, if you profess him, Affirm him with your works. Amen. Amen. Let your testimony be true. Yes. But how, Jeff, how are we to face this wrong? I mean, they're, they're, they're burning our country down. How do we face such wrong? How do we call it out? How do we, how do we silence the lies and still do these things? Well, Paul told us, he told Titus in chapter 2, verse 7. He gave him some very clear instructions, I think. He said, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So, Paul's instruction would be that we must demonstrate kindness toward others through our good works. We must be actively pursuing kindness toward others through our good works. So that's a sacrificial kind of thing. We must speak with integrity. That means truth. We must speak with dignity. Now that is not to say that we, that we speak in a dignified way. We use lofty words or, or flowery speech. It means that, that dignity must not be attacked in our speech. It must be our ally. We must preserve and protect the dignity, the basic worth of others When we speak, that must come out, that we acknowledge their basic worth, it must come out in the things that we say, we must work very hard to protect the dignity of those that we disagree with. Once you have crossed that line and you have started making attacks on their dignity or you have demonstrated that you don't value them as a person, all arguments are out the window. All footing has been lost. Mm -hmm. He says we must speak in ways that cannot be condemned so that... So that any opponent will be brought to shame and you will not be able to find anything evil to say. They can't find anything evil to say about us. I think that's interesting that we are supposed to speak with dignity, to speak in integrity, to uh, be ready and and show ourselves uh, strong in every good work, that we are to say nothing that can be condemned so that our, our opponent may be brought to shame. See, we, we, we have it backwards. We think that in order to bring our opponent to shame, we got to get them bigger. We get them bigger. We use a bigger knife. We use a bigger, bigger shovel to, to hit them on the head with. The, the, the more, worse we can make them feel, the more shame we have brought upon them. Paul says, no, it's the other way around. When you are kind and you are loving, you speak with dick, you affirm that they are, they are a human and they have value. 
you speak the truth in love and you don't say anything that can condemn yourself, that's when you bring them to shame. Why? Because they don't have anything to say to you. They can't find fault with you. They tried to find fault with Christ and they couldn't. It didn't stop them from trying, but they couldn't. Every time they, they came against him, they, they were shown to be foolish. They were the ones brought to shame. Why? Because he modeled this. It doesn't matter how, how right you are or how true your argument is if you do not present it in a loving way that preserves the dignity of others. As soon as your tone turns hateful, as soon as they find malice in your words or in your tone, as soon as basic dignity is attacked, your argument is gone. The only thing your opponents will see from that point on is hate and malice and they will have plenty of evil to say about you. You have not brought shame to them. You have given them ammunition. Let me give you, um, I'm hesitant to do this, but I'm going to do it. <clears throat> Let me give you an explosive and divisive example. Our president, Mr. Donald Trump. I'm only using him because everybody knows him. And he's a very public figure and he's very publicly vocal. It does not matter to his opponents how much good his policies have done for our nation. It does not matter that unemployment is at its lowest rates or was before the pandemic that it's ever been. It does not matter that he's resolved, you know, errors in treaties that we've had globally that have been milking us of billions and trillions of dollars over the years. It doesn't matter that he has been a friend to people of faith. It doesn't matter that he's done great things policy-wise for our country, he cannot win any of them over because he is such an abrasive person when he deals with them. They have nothing but evil to say about him. And before you go laying that all, all that blame at the feet of the biased media, and they are biased, I'm, I'm not saying that they're not, they are biased, but just consider that he makes it so very easy for them. All because he does not follow the principles that Paul laid out to Titus. He doesn't speak with integrity. I'm not, calling the, I'm not saying he's a bold-faced liar, but the man likes to exaggerate. He loves to speak big. He's a salesman. That's what he does. He likes to, and that's, that's a proven fact. Now, many people can overlook that. Oh, he's just, he's just being, you know, he's just talking big. I get that. I've got an aunt that talks real big. You know who I'm talking about. She talks real big. And that, I mean, I don't think that it's in their heart. It's not in her heart to be a liar, but there's exaggeration going on. And yes, the media is nitpicking him on every little thing he says, but he knows that, and still he exaggerates and then complains. Stop exaggerating. Don't give him fuel. Don't give him ammunition. He doesn't speak with dignity either church Amen. calling people a horse face and, and saying that they're low lives and any number of the other you know belittling childlike name calling rants that he goes on that's not that's not dignity that doesn't bring dignity to the presidency and it's certainly not dignifying of his opponents so they found evil to speak about him that's all they can see now they found they've, they've been given he's handed them ammunition 
goodness, man, I, I thank the Lord that he has made the policy decisions that he's made. I think he's done great things for our country from a policy standpoint, but my goodness, he complains that no one notices the good things that he does, but then he gives such, such ammunition to his opposition. Look, I, I'm not making a statement about whether or not Trump has been a good president. I'm just using him as a very clear example of how not to silence lies and how not to call out wrongs. People cannot hear his message because of their hatred for him, and he gives them ample fuel for that fire. And that's, that's all I'm saying is Paul tells us that we must act differently. We must be careful in how we approach controversies. The way to rebuke sharply and the way to silence lies is to be above reproach, church. Amen. To speak the truth and in dignity. To act in loving kindness. You silence your opponents by giving them nothing evil to say about you. Because if you're standing on the truth, there's no argument that can be made against it. The only argument they can make is a pejorative against you when you've given them the ammunition to say it. Amen. Amen. Remember the message from last week. We are to passionately pursue reconciliation. Well, Paul has laid that out for Titus and for all of us on how to do that. We must insist that those who are brothers and sisters in Christ should be submissive to rulers and authorities. That means we're law-abiding citizens. We're obedient. That means we do what our bosses tell us to do. We're good employees. We must be ready for every good work. I've already touched that one. Speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Oh, that we could be gentle. And show perfect courtesy. And I love how he says it. To all people. Everybody. We are to show perfect courtesy to everybody. Church, I love you. Let me pray for you. And we'll get you out of here on this glorious Sunday. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. I pray that it, it is light and life to us. And I thank you for all of these gathered here, Lord. I pray that you send us on our way safe. Keep us safe from the noisome pestilence. Keep us, give us compassion for those who disagree with us, Lord. Help us to represent you well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.